Welcome to Addiction to Recovery. Our purpose and passion is to bring you not only the science of addiction, but also the patient perspective and how the two relate. Welcome back to another edition of Addiction to Recovery. Again, I'm Josh Solom and my co-host, uh, Dr. Heather Bell. Eventually, I'll stop laughing at yeah, this. This is our new goofy uh, introduction. Our new introduction, Brian. <laughs> so, uh, but yes, this is a uh, this is addiction to recovery, and we are picking up um, on Brian's story. Brian Andrews. He was on a couple weeks ago, and we are now um, going to pick up his story where we left off. Um, hi, Brian. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. It's uh, it's good to have you back on. I know it was it was, it was hit and miss and whether what we were going to get last week, but we didn't, so we were doing it now. So this is, it wasn't too far off, and we only had two episodes in between, so I don't think the listeners had to wait too long. So, even though that was not too long ago, why don't you just give us a quick recap of, of how we got to the um, the, the quick uh, non-Josh version? Yeah, the non-Josh version. <laughs> yes. Well, like the listeners heard the last time, you know, my addiction started with alcohol, progressed to marijuana, to cocaine, to methamphetamine, which opened the doors to a life of dealing and power and this uh, this twisted perception of all the things I wanted when I was a youth. Uh, my dad's death fueled that. And uh, when I finally got to treatment that first time and found my path, uh, I had... Uh, uh, gone to a halfway house down in Mankato, Minnesota, and things were really looking good. I mean, it doesn't get any better than uh, the woman of your dreams uh, saying, yes, she'll finally date you. <laughs> but uh, uh, during that time also, I had that back injury uh, while working at uh, pet food manufacturing place. Sure. Where, where eventually I had to have a, a major back surgery, and the doctors prescribed me Vicodin. So how much time, Brian, between like your, I'm going to hit treatment, like your last use at that point, and then your exposure to the opioids with the back surgery? Yeah. So uh, uh, one year for sure, because I was told to wait one year before I got into a relationship. <laughs> so I waited the one year. Uh, right after that, my now wife uh, had told me, yes, I will date you. And then within that, that, uh, few months, uh, I ended up having to have back surgery. Uh, I was released from the hospital on Christmas Eve. So it would have been, would have been, uh, uh, probably about a year and a half at that point when they prescribed me the opioids. Okay. And so just for time frame, what year was this or what, how old were you? Yeah. So I turned, yeah, I turned 23 while I was in treatment. And so that would have been, uh, uh, I would have been just about uh, 24, and uh, yeah. So, and and that's that's a good point for me to like talk about again. Is that you did a lot for that that time period up till 22. I mean, a lot of your story was pretty heavy, and it was only it was a short period of time. Really. Yeah, it was like 17, like right, 16, <laughs> 17 years old. Okay. So it was yeah. it was like five years, right? Yeah, five years, and it was lightning fast, and yeah. it felt like multiple lifetimes. Yeah, right. And and you did you 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 got your money's worth. It seemed right. <laughs> oh my gosh! You can put it like that for right. sure. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, let but me that just say that uh, no. uh, I was exposed to things that I haven't even had nightmares about. 
in that time period. Yeah. And it was like, uh, it was like, uh, kept sinking deeper and deeper. Uh, I could see, I could see that old me that, uh, that I'd finally started to like right before I started using marijuana. I had just started to like the guy, right? Myself. And then I started messing around with marijuana, then cocaine, and then methamphetamine. And I could see him just slipping away from me. And I could remember who he was, but I couldn't be him. And, uh, and I even struggled with that after, I, after I'd gotten clean and sober. And, you know, because I love to joke around. Like I shared before uh, the first session, I, I like to help people. I'm kind-hearted and, and empathetic and compassionate. And uh, um, those pieces uh, were just starting to come back to me uh, when the doctors prescribed me opioids. And, it, and like, like I shared the last time, it wasn't like it was uh, they prescribed them to me and then, boom, immediately I was abusing them, yeah. right? That, that was over a, probably a couple-year period because I moved back into up the Brainerd Lakes area. Uh, I ended up getting a, a, a job uh, doing sales, <laughs> and then uh, uh, I ended up getting offered a management position for a local convenience store, and, and things were starting to go well, and... Uh, and, but I started to have these little struggles at, at my jobs. There was always something that wasn't right. And uh, today I, I look back and I know that I was leading uh, with insecurity, right? And, uh, but it was the insecurity because of, uh, probably because of my uh, using my pills and, uh, and just the struggle with not having the time to uh, discover who I really am and know that I'm enough. And so uh, it kept pushing me in a direction and I kept looking for more and more because I needed to fill that hole. And so I was trying to climb the corporate ladder. I had a sales job. I ended up getting a job offer again with a sales company. And it was, it was like six figures. And, uh, and it still wasn't enough. And that was about the time that I found a new doctor. I call him Dr. Feelgood. Mm-hmm. Dr. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's the one you mentioned that, that went, bumped you up to morphine. So, yeah. so can we, I, I just, again, want to reference. So when you started using, you had the surgery, got the opioids mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. took them kind of as prescribed for a, a while. How, what yeah. is a while until you met Dr. Yeah. Feelgood? Yeah, I would say, I would say a, a year and a half. But yeah. when I say according to the prescription, right, it was, uh, I always just took one. I always took the least amount. But mm-hmm. after I, after I discovered maybe it was, because of the extra one, it, I still stayed within what the script said, right? It says take one or two every four to six hours. And so what I was doing is one every six hours or longer, and then it became two every six hours, then two every four hours. Right. And, then it, and then over that time period, it just kept uh, like a catalyst. And, uh, and then I knew the right words to say to Dr. Feelgood uh, because I knew he was prescribing uh, heavy pain meds to other people. So and did so, you... Did you um? Did you ever get off of them after your surgery, though? I'm asking this because our two yeah, episodes no. go at this point now. That is what we talked about. It was the transition from I have an like a surgery or an injury to here's a pain script and then or a pain med script and then when should you stop it? And then it becoming and yeah. then it becoming chronic pain, which versus... some people truly do have chronic pain and do need pain meds. Yes, but where's that fine line between? We just never stopped them, and now we have chronic pain meds and addiction and all of that. So, 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. And uh, um, uh, when I did quit, it wasn't because I stopped taking them. It was because uh, uh, my life had unraveled, right? And I think it's important that I just share this story mm-hmm. uh, uh, because I kept trying to stuff the stuff inside me, try to the money, the power. The, wasn't with the drugs at this point, but it was in the community. I became part of this meth coalition where I became Mr. Meth and. Uh, I thought I was the greatest, you know, the poster child for 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 meth prevention. And uh, but I was I stopped doing all the things I needed to do for my recovery. I stopped going to meetings. I stopped going to church. And then when I had that sales job, it was from dark to dark that I worked. And at this time, my wife was pregnant with our second child uh, together. It'd been our fourth child. And uh, um, this is in February of 2016. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, she had a complicated birth. Uh, when our when the son was born, he wasn't wasn't breathing. Uh, they worked on him for hours to get him to uh, be stable enough to transport him to St. Cloud. And I remember uh, seeing my son laying in that table, and doctors are rushing around and they're trying to get him to breathe, and uh, they're they're freaking out. And then I I look over at my wife, and the doctor's trying to get my wife to pay attention. I'm trying to block off her view of our son because he didn't look good. And uh, um, she was, uh, the doctor says, you need to pay attention to what I'm telling you uh, or you're not going to make it. And so I have mm-hmm. my wife dying on the table. I have my son dying behind me. And it was like this overwhelming tipping point where I started to see those glimpses of my dad dead on the table. And then finally I ended up snapping. Uh, uh, my wife and my child got uh, rushed to St. Cloud. Um, and wasn't long after that that uh, we were upside down on our mortgage. Uh, um, things were just getting, oh, excuse me, not 2016, but 2008. That's okay. what I was thinking. Yeah. Josh just looked very confused uh, for the last few minutes. Uh, yes, I was uh, like. Oh, sorry, folks. Uh, I was yeah, taking was my socks off and doing math. It was hard. It was oh, late. hold on a minute. How many, how much clean time you got there, buddy? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, 2008. No, 2008. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, during and in the mortgage crisis that we were yeah. we were a product of that, and uh, eventually I said the only way to the only way to save my mortgage is to is to uh, get some drugs. And at this time, I had moved somebody into my basement that I was gonna I was gonna run a treatment center in my basement because I could get clean. I could get anybody clean because I was Mr. Meth. Right. And. Uh, um, uh, he heard my wife and I uh, arguing about uh, money and how we're going to pay this and how we're going to pay that. And uh, the, the our brand new car got repoed and, and then he finally comes up the stairs and he says, you know, I can help you. I'm like, well, how are you going to help me? He says, well, if you give me uh, $1,600, I'll go out to Washington. Uh, if we pay for an ounce, uh, I can get a pound. They'll front us the rest of a pound and I'll sell it. That way you can stay in recovery is what he said. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and, um, and I'll give you the money so that you guys can uh, get your mortgage caught up. And all of a sudden I'm calculating numbers on paper and I'm like, well, that's a good deal. And that was just insane. Well, so I sent him out to, sent him out to Washington. So you made that decision. I made that decision. And, and I think it's important to, to highlight that is because I have personally experienced that feeling of I'm not, I'm not feeling like I'm doing my, my life right. You know, and there's, there's this opportunity. There's always opportunities out there. Once you've been in that life, 
you know that there is a there's almost a way out, right? Well, especially yep. when you were as successful, is that the right word? As it sounds yeah. like you both were, where <laughs> you know, you you weren't you weren't just using an addicted and dealing with the disease. You were on the other end too. And I mean, right or wrong, whatever. Yeah. You know that that world exists, like the easy money. Right. And that's what kept going through my mind too. But what I didn't calculate was from 2001 until 2009, a lot had changed. Sure. Yeah. A lot had changed. Like I still knew people, but uh, everybody was so happy that I had gotten sober, even the people that I was buying from. Uh, they wanted me to get sober too. And, uh, so then when I come back around, I'm like, Hey, I need to save my house. And they were like, well, this isn't going to do it. And so I kept getting uh, closed doors. You know, we talked about the, where was my dad's friends at that time that I introduced? Yeah. Well, all these people were, uh, were saying no enough's enough. Uh, you've been clean and sober for all these years. You, we're not going to be a part of your relapse. And, uh, that's amazing. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. You know? It was, it was. And so when the guy came back from Washington and I barely got my money back, I said, the only way to do this is to do it myself. And so I called my cousin, um, my cousin, and I went down to the cities, we ended up getting some stuff and, uh, and I didn't even make it back to Baxter, Minnesota. Uh, all of a sudden I started thinking, what if it's fake? What if, it, what if he just swapped it out? And, uh, and I'm going so to be trying to sell fake. Oh, yeah. So I had him use it in front of me. And uh, it's like, yep, see, it's real. And in my mind, I'm like, no, I've seen some fake stuff do the same thing. And uh, it was just a play, right? It was just what I needed to convince myself that it would be okay. Because all along, this whole thing, all it was 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 an excuse to get high. You see, I I had created this scenario in my head that if life ever got to the point where I thought it was as bad as it was when I quit drugs the first time, then I'd just go back to doing drugs again. Um, and so this was that scenario. I'm losing my house. I've lost my car. Uh, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to do this. And my son's just about died. My wife just about died. This is the, this is the time. And, uh, and I ended up getting high and, and it was like, a you want to talk fast track, uh, in six months, I lost my house. Uh, I was arrested. My family ended up in the homeless shelter and, uh, uh I ended up on the street six months. Six months. I got introduced. Yep, I got introduced. Uh, I'd gone to treatment in that six month period. It came back out, um, and before I before my before we lost the house all the way, uh, I'd gotten out of treatment center, and I had this thought: you know, if I really want to be clean and have long term recovery, I got to make sure that I try everything. And I've never used IV drugs, so uh, maybe I better try that first before I before I start my clean time. And this is just how insane it is, right? right. Uh, and so I found a, I had found a syringe in the house from my wife, uh, who was an IV drug user before me. She was in treatment at the time, and and I couldn't figure out what I was doing. Um, but once you know it, somebody shows up at the house I hadn't seen in like six years, and they're like, "Well, I'll help you." And then uh, from there, I had some of that morphine left, and uh, they said, "Well, we'll we'll show you how to do that too." So and then, and then everything melted down. My we lost the house. I ended up in the Grace Unit multiple times for trying to commit suicide, and and my wife ended up uh, uh, with the kids and pregnant in the uh, um, the homeless shelter, going from church to church. Gotcha. So, um, 
so and in this was what this was 2008 is when you said that the 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 thing happened with your wife and your son right yeah and then, yep, and then it was very quickly after that right yeah so yep yeah it was within that it was within that year and 2009 when, is what i mark as my when i relapsed yeah and so when yep. you when you say that you were you you had those painkillers but that never became a thing for you is that I mean, you, you yeah. ended up getting morphine, but did you go back to the meth? Was that the, yeah? Was that yeah? True? So yeah, so that's that's always been my that's always been my deal. And when I when I had when I had uh, um, when that person showed up at my house after I'd gotten out of treatment, my wife was in treatment, and uh, um, they said they want they felt like they wanted to get high, and I'm like, well, I felt like I want to get high too. And they said, well, if you got money, I can get some. So she came back with some, showed me how to how to shoot it up this this meth. Um, and the, and during that end part, I was also selling the morphine because it was never my it was never really my big thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'd keep half the there was enough of them, so I would keep half the script. So you're and saying this doctor Doctor Feelgood was giving you scripts during this whole time? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then uh, um, once once I got introduced to uh shooting it and i'd relapsed on meth i uh, went back for a refill appointment uh he wanted to get a ua from me well, i just took the ua because i wasn't even thinking i came back i came back positive for meth and then he he kicked me off the pain contract and and uh yeah that was a did you just that uh, did that not bother you too much other than the fact that you weren't going to have um the the pills to sell i mean did, did you go through withdrawal I think that with that was, uh, I know because I could, I was, I could buy them, right? Okay, Instead yeah. of selling them, then I was buying this them. This is still 2009. Yeah. Yeah, 2009. Right. Yep, 10. And so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so in 2010, um, uh, I was trying, I was in the middle of trying to get on uh, um, disability. Uh, I, I'd been diagnosed as schizophrenic along with a bunch of other things. And, uh, and because of my back injury, uh, um, uh, so I put that in. My family was in, uh, like I said, in the homeless shelter during that time, and I was walking back and forth on on uh, Washington Street in Brainerd, and looking at the bridge and thinking, jumping off the bridge. And every car that went by, I thought I could just jump in front of the car, because I couldn't figure out how to support my family. And I thought the only way to support them is a death benefit, and uh, and so I kept kept ending up back in the. Uh, in the grace unit, I tried to get a therapist, and the therapist said, "All you need to do is think positive thoughts." <laughs> and I was like, "I'm not there, man. Right. I'm not there." Yeah, yeah, that's easier said than done. And you know, and how long did that go on? That that whole because I know I've I've been there too, but that whole idea of looking at that bridge and just realizing that that could be the answer, or jumping out in front of the car. How long did you yeah. have to go through that? It never went away until I got clean. See, uh, there was little breaks, right? And so, um, eventually, I got allowed to go in. I was I was permitted to go into the the new pathways program. It's a this homeless shelter from church to church. But I remember going in there, and before everybody would go and eat, I'd go into the bathroom and sit in the stall, and I was I was shooting up in the in the bathroom of the churches. And I remember, I still remember just tears flowing down my face because I was just like I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. And uh, um, eventually I got approved for my disability. Uh, we ended up getting a place to live. 
Um, my, the birth of my uh, next son, which is Kale, um, which would have been 2011, 3-14-11. And he also ended up in the NIC unit. And uh, I got pre- 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 um, prescribed uh, uh, Suboxone during that time. And so I started to get clean time, and then I would relapse and clean time, and I relapse. We ended up getting stable housing. Uh, and uh, I say from 2009 to, to 2014, I discovered a whole lot of new lows. Uh, when I'm sharing my story to groups, I talk about uh, I had all these little thresholds that I put over my life as long as, as long as, as long as I'm not that bad, right? Right. And so, um, w- w- real quick story about the the how how cunning, baffling, and powerful this disease is. I had had a I had had a, a sober period, and I was reading books. We we love to read, and so I'm reading these these detective novels. And uh, this one undercover detective works as a New York New York uh, police officer, and uh, after they're working all day, they would go out for dinner and. During dinner, they would pour this glass of, and I don't even know what it is, but I, but I remembered it then. Um, at the time, I lived down the street from a liquor store and a gas station, and if I wanted to get a can of pop, it was fifty cents at the pop machine at the liquor store or a dollar plus tax at the gas station. And so I'd always, <laughs> I'd always go over there and put quarters in and uh, or a dollar. Well, one day. Uh, my dollar wouldn't it wouldn't accept my dollar, and I could go back to holiday and get changed and come back, uh, or this guy's sitting literally like three feet away from me through the glass door, and so I crack open the door and I ask him, "Can I get some change for this dollar?" Won't, uh, the machine won't take it. He's like, "Yeah, no problem." And so I just kind of stuck the dollar through the door and kind of stayed outside. And he's like, "I ain't coming to you," and I'm like, oh. "I knew it was a trap, right?" And yeah. so I go in. He gives me the change, and I look around. And I see all the shiny bottles, and all of a sudden, I'm wonder. I get this thought. I wonder if they have any of that stuff from the book. And uh, mm-hmm. I, so I just asked him. I said, "You guys carry this stuff?" I said, "It was." I'm reading the novel, and they they're talking about it in there, and this this premium stuff. And he's like, "I don't know. Why don't we go take a look?" Jeez. Oh, <laughs> so we walk down the mile long uh, aisle with all the shiny bottles and the lights glimmering, and we get down there, and there's one bottle left. And I knew it was the last bottle in the whole world. Yep. Either get it now or don't get it ever. It's a well, sign. <laughs> yep. So I took one and I thought, if I'm coming home with a bottle, I better get one for my wife too. And uh, and at this and point, so I, how was she doing? She was sober too. We were both sober. Okay. And uh, and I came back with a with a with this two things of alcohol. And my kids nailed me uh, before I even got to the house. They were yelling and screaming, "Dad's Dad's got alcohol! Dad's got alcohol!" And so I come in and I put the bottle on the table and I, I grab a cup and some ice like they do in the book and uh, everybody's telling me stop, don't do it, don't do it. And I twist the top and pour it down and shoot it back and uh, and before I could stop myself. And uh, after the second glass, all of a sudden I had this idea. You know what? I'm pretty sure I know where where uh, where there's a drug dealer. Yeah. I drive by this house all the time and I see. Uh, what looks like drug activity. You know what? I'm just going to get in the vehicle and drive over there and see. And so that's what I did. I got in the vehicle two hours, uh, an hour after my second drink uh, and uh, um, drove over to this house, not knowing who it was or who lived there, went up and knocked on the door and the door opened and it was somebody I knew and they were in the middle of a drug deal and I bought some meth that night. Uh, and that's, and I've, and I've heard that 
a lot from a lot of people. I've experienced stuff like that. And I just want to, you know, reiterate that these things are real. People probably are, are probably thinking, well, this is, this can't be real. Like the whole idea of, I need to try everything before I get clean. You know, I better try and shoot it before I, this is a real thing. I mean, people, you need to understand that this is what happens in your brain when you're, when you are under this, this disease, it has you, it tells you things and you listen because you believe it. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's so crazy what it does to you. And you can, it's almost like you're watching a slow motion train going into another train and you can't stop it. And it's yep. so infuriating because it's your own life and, and you just are, are just, I can't stop it. You know, it's like, I've always said, you know, I, I come up with a, a, on a bag of meth when I'm on probation and, and I know for a fact that if I take that, I'm going to end up in handcuffs at yes. some point and yes. I can't stop myself, you know, and it's, and yep. it's not a moral failing. This is no. stuff that is, has developed over time and it's messed with your head and you are not able to make that clear choice anymore. And so I, I wanted to just say that so people understand that this is, you know, it may sound totally crazy, but it is not. And it is, it is totally well, true. And people are going to say, well, okay, you just drank two glasses of alcohol. You shouldn't have been driving. And you know, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. they don't understand what that alcohol does to a brain that has a substance use disorder, recovery or not, and yep. then to then say, well, you just drink two glasses of alcohol, how does that turn into starting to use meth? Again, it's all related. It's all related. Like, yep, it's all con- it's connected. Once you push the domino over, it hits the next one, it yep. hits the next one. Uh, I was I was already primed to, to relapse. It was just the right scenario needed to happen, and it would happen. And that day was I had not I had not planned on uh, uh, relapsing that day not but not in any stretch of the imagination I literally just grabbed and pop I hadn't even had a thought of drinking or a thought of wanting to use uh, and by the end of the night uh, I had bought enough for all of us to for my wife and I both to to relapse and stay high so did she too then that day yep yeah. yep when I came back uh, with some math. Uh, well, she said first. She said, "Why are you? Where are you going? What are you doing? Getting in the car now?" I said, "Well, if I relapse on alcohol, I might as well relapse on meth." Right, and that's the mentality. You know, I've yep. already done this. I might as well go all the way. Yep, I'm. I'm already considered myself relapsed. Yeah, and, and that, so um, came back and uh, and she's like, "If you're going to get more, once we relapsed, she's like, if you get any more of that, you better pick up some syringes too.'" I'm like, I ain't ever bought them before, so I don't, where am I going to get them? Well, the grocery store, I'll sell them to you. So we got to just make two stops this time. Right. You yeah. know, and it, it's it's just, it's at the time I'm on probation, um, because of my mental health, uh, they, weren't, uh, they weren't pushing me to be at all the appointments. I was using it as a, I was using it as an excuse or a free pass. And once I, once my addiction really started uh, uh, going full speed, I said, "Well, you know what? When it's time for me to stop, they'll come and stop me." Right. You yeah. see, like you said, once I start, I can't stop. And the only yeah. way to stop is to be stopped, and that's the that's the handcuffs and the law enforcement. If right. I get that, if I'm lucky enough to get that. Right. And it's and you're and you're like, it's it's you figure it's their job to catch me now. You know, it's not my job to stop. It's their job to catch me and make me stop. And so it's almost like a game. 
Okay, you know? let me then be the devil's advocate for the whole decriminalization then. Do you think you have to be arrested to stop? Well, no, not necessarily arrested. I mean, I think, you know, like it's the pain of using versus the pain of staying, uh, pain of getting sober and the pain of using. They, mm-hmm. they, they work against each other. As soon as the pain of staying high is greater than the pain of getting sober, that's when you're going to get sober. So that's my recovery story yeah, right there. There's negative yeah. consequences that come with the use. And it doesn't matter yeah. if it's if it's legal consequences or you lose um, physical things. There, everybody has their their consequences are different. Now, I don't yeah. think it takes a prison sentence to get somebody to change. You know, and the, the the pain of getting high can be really extensive when you're talking about I I don't have any money. I'm I mean, part of mine, Brian, was uh, my veins collapsed. I could not I could not any longer get you know, high like I wanted to. And, yeah. and, and then it's and almost it. like that weird twisted mentality of just like you just said before of, well, I might as well try everything before I'm done. And then your veins clap and you're like, well, fine, then I won't use again. And I'm showing you almost like that. Well, and then it was... It well, was, what uh, we did is we started doing it in the juggler, right? Yeah. Right. We started going in the neck. And that's where and, I didn't uh, get to that point. Um just, your car accident. Well, and yeah, I probably would have if it wasn't for my car accident. But, you know, it was scary for me. Um, but uh, sh- shooting up was scary at one point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, yeah. you finally, you, you keep hitting that new, like you said, there's there's those new lows that you hit. And uh, you, you figure you're never going to get there, but you end up there, you know? And, yeah. And, yeah. What we once thought was nightmare it becomes reality. Right. Yeah, and it's a new normal then. Yep, exactly. It, yep, it's the like level that, of normal has shifted big time. That whole idea of you having to go to the grocery store to get needles. I, I, I was there. I did that, and I thought, well, who, do, who does that? You know, how does anybody do I, that? Okay, and then, I know that. And I then did once too. I did that, then it was like no big deal, you know. But for the longest time, I was so freaked out to even talk about that. Oh, I was anti. I was against it. Uh, those junkies, I don't want nothing to do with those junkies. And I told my wife when we were, before we got married, if you're going to, you're, you're going to be using drugs intravenously, then you can go because I don't want to be with a junkie. Yeah. So, so then this is what, 2014 ish, 13, 12, somewhere well, around there. I would say 2012. Okay. Yep. Yep. 2012 to 2014 is when things started to get shook up a little bit. So now you're shooting what what are you yeah yeah so yep so it was always it was always opioids but it but it wasn't okay to just do opioids alone and it wasn't okay to just do meth alone and so uh we started just mixing it all up so meth and and fentanyl meth and morphine meth and whatever opioid we could get dilated yep and and then and then that still wasn't enough so we we started to really just kind of take it to the next level. So then we started mixing wild turkey in with it instead of water, but wild turkey, meth, and, and opioids. Wow. And uh, and I used to laugh about it, just laugh about it, just because it took me into another and took me to another dimension. And uh, um, and during that time, uh, I ended up. I think around 2000, 2012, All of a sudden. Uh, I had gotten into a legal issue with somebody that had stole from me. And when I got out, after I'd smashed into their car, uh, the next day my back started hurting really bad. And then it got so bad that I could barely, I could barely breathe and I could barely walk 
so I finally went to the went to the doctor, and in that appointment, uh, I said, "Well, I have a chronic back injury and back problems," and uh, he says, "Well, we'll have to do an MRI." And I said, "Well, make sure that you have contrast too." And he says, "How about you let me be the doctor, and you be the patient?" <laughs> and so I said, "Okay." <laughs> well, we go in for the MRI. I can barely sit through. I can barely lay through it because I'm in so much pain. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I. Get it, gets finished. I get in the vehicle, start driving home, and I get a phone call. They said, "Well, we need you to come back. We need to do another set of MRIs with contrast." And I, <laughs> and you're like, uh, "Sign me uh, up for med school." <laughs> yeah, and I said, "You know what? Not today." I said, "I can, I can barely lay through that first one." And I said, "I already told them I needed to start with that because of all the arthritis and problems back there." Yeah. And so I'll come back tomorrow. And so the next day, sometime, I ended up going in, and and they did it. And I didn't even make it back home before my phone rang, and it was the doctor saying, "You're, you need to hurry up and get back to the hospital. You, you've got an infection, an abscess cyst in your spine." Oof. And he says, uh, 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 "There's two ways that you can get it. One of them is from uh, 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 to, like a tooth infection, and the other one's from IV drug use." And I was so fast to say, "Well, I've got some really bad teeth," and he's like, <laughs> "Yeah." Uh, yeah, he said, well, you just come to the emergency room, tell them that you're a direct admit, and they'll bring you right in. Uh, there's a team waiting for you. If only it ever happened that fast, but mm. yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And well, you know what? I couldn't go because they might they might discover that I was using. So mm. d- so did you go? Um, I didn't go the first day. I had, my mom ended up going there to meet me there because uh, uh, um, they called her after I didn't answer the first time, and... Um, I had track marks all over my arms, and and I didn't want to go in there with them knowing that. Uh, so I, I had taken sandpaper and sanded down my arms Jeez. where the track marks were to try to get rid of the sign. And then I thought, well, uh, if I drink enough, uh, enough, um, oh, what is it called? Anyway, if you drink enough of this stuff, it can get me clean. But I could only, I could only vinegar. So I started drinking vinegar. Uh, I got through a gallon of it, and people kept showing up to buy drugs. And and then I kept going and using, and then finally, uh, uh, two days later, I was stuck in my bed. Uh, actually, I ended up getting a bad bad. I used to get bad muscle cramps too, and I had gout in both feet. I had this pain all over. I was just falling apart, and I got wedged between the bed and the wall, and I couldn't get up. I was I lost movement of my legs, and um, uh, friends of mine ended up dragging me up and. Um, bringing me to the hospital, and I went in and I said, "Yeah, I'm, I've got a direct admit order from two days ago." <laughs> <laughs> and they said, "We don't have anything in here for that." They said it was an emergency, <laughs> and they said, "Well, uh, we'll have to talk to your doctor." And I was, they're not getting anywhere, and I'm literally in tears because of the pain. It's I've never experienced any pain like it, like like sobbing. I could barely catch my breath because of the pain so bad. So at this and, time. Uh, Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, at this time, is you know your wife is your wife still around? Is she helping you at all? Is there you know what's going on there? She's at home with all the kids. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we had five kids at the time, and and uh, so I get into the uh, the doctor finally said, "Well, I told you that you were direct admit two days ago. Now you can take the the old fashioned route since you wanted to wait around." <laughs> That's what he said to me, and. Uh, he said, you have to go check in in the emergency room. Let them know that you're in pain. <laughs> I said, what? 
So I got back to the emergency room, and by that time, he had already called and let him know that I'd finally arrived. Yeah. Um, while I was in there, while I was in there, my kidneys shut down. Uh, they're working on trying to save my life. They put all the different antibiotics in me. At one time, the antibiotics ended up melting the bottom of my skin, um, mm. where the IV was at. And they're trying to they're trying to balance enough heavy antibiotics. They won't give me anything for pain. And I'm in extreme pain, but thankfully I got good friends. And so my friends would bring up morphine or fentanyl to the hospital while uh, there, while I was in there. And that's when my kidneys shut down. And uh, I ended up being hospitalized for a month, uh, three weeks in Brainerd and a week and a half in St. Cloud, dying from this infection. And what year was and that? Not, and not able to stop. What, what year was that, Brian? Uh, that would have been 2000, uh, 2012, okay. 2013. Yep. I'd say 2000, uh, end of 2012, beginning of 2013. So these, these are all, and, and this is for everybody listening. This is, this is not, I mean, this is really a tough story for me to hear because I know the man. I mean, I know you, Brian, and I've never heard this before. And I just, it, my heart hurts to know that this is what was going on. You know, obviously I didn't know you at this time, but to see you now and to see what you, you've made of yourself and for you to even be able to tell the story is, is quite remarkable. Um, and the way you put it, you know, that's so simply, you know, they have had these new lows, but you keep finding new ways to get to the next one. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm here. just, I, I'm, I'm, for the record, I had just started being a doctor locally in 2012. So <laughs> let's just, let me just put that out there. No, so that, I mean, that's important timeline though, just by the way, for people that, you know, the whole Dr. Feelgood you had, nobody was checking anything then. And True. in 2012, when you heard someone had that on their chart, nobody got pain met. I mean, I am a little shocked. I mean, your story is ridiculous, and I can't believe that you, you know, yeah, it's shocking and sad. Yeah. So I just want to just follow, just to really emphasize kind of, I think, the very last thing you said is that, so this was a month-ish, you know, between the two hospitals. Um, yeah. But you were, you said, I still was finding a way. Like, you were still finding a way to use during this time. Correct. While you were. Yeah. Was that for pain? Up- uh, that was both. Yeah, I could dress it up as pain, but it was both. I think ultimately avoid withdrawal. Yeah, uh, to keep getting high, right. you know, and 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 so they ended up having to put a port into my heart because of my because of my veins being shot as well. And mm. uh, and I thought, well, I'm not like those other junkies because I'm not using the port. I'm still using my other my good arm, <laughs> and and so I always I always had to make sure that I didn't look like my idea of what I thought was a junkie. And that idea of what along, you thought was a junkie kept moving. Yeah, but the whole time I was I was that I was that I was that yeah. junkie that I was classifying other people as. Right. And so yeah. So then what happened? You I mean, obviously you got out of the hospital and obviously you're still alive. So what happened yeah. when you got out or what yeah, tell me about that. Yep. So the um, the infection, once they finally figured out what the bacteria was, and just so everybody knows uh, the bacteria was from the colon, and uh, it was from using in the bathroom, uh, IV, IV drug use in the bathroom. And when you hit the toilet, uh, it sprays all that bacteria all over the place. 
and uh and that was my one of my main places to use was in the bathroom and uh and it was it was it had it was attached to my spine it was everything that it touched it infected so i had i had discitis i had osteomyelitis uh my 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 ribs rib bones were infected my hip bones were infected uh, uh my disc my disc and spine was in, were infected mm. and uh so finally uh uh they they said they they said they didn't know if i would survive and that didn't even hit me it didn't even it didn't even like you know make an impact hmm. and uh eventually uh when i was down in st cloud they had to they had to call in some uh anesthesiologist to 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 try to get a uh, a new line in and he said here let me do you a favor and he took a black marker and uh and he drew a line where my veins were at in my arm he said this way you don't have any more trouble and cause more damage and I remember just that. I remember the, the the shame of that experience. Like I didn't want to go to the doctor to start with. That's why I never went. Right. Um, but to be there and and to 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 everybody just shaking their heads every time the doctor came in the room. Like I already knew I had a problem, uh, but I wanted to stay high so I didn't have to see what was going on with uh, with all this. And then I have an anesthesiologist that comes in and 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 kind of. And I suppose they see it all the time, but doesn't give it doesn't make no. it okay to, to say that. No. And I'm, I'm well, just to clarify, he wasn't doing it as a favor. He was doing that to make, no. make a point. Yeah. And he was telling you he that was, you were a piece of garbage. Yeah. No, yeah. that was straight judgment. That yeah, was not okay. It's, no. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and when you we've gone through all of this and now you get to this point, you obviously survive. And like they said, what happens after, you know, when, you, when you're now... Because you said this is 2012, and and I think you yep. said it goes on until 2014. Yeah. So I talk about these thresholds, right? Yep. And you mentioned it, right? The pain of the pain of standing where we're at's got to be greater than the pain of change. Yeah. And that and that dying in the hospital for me wasn't it. Um. And and uh, uh, within the next year, um, my wife had said, "Hey, Brian, can you can you uh, come in and help me, help me shoot up?" And I was like. Yeah, I'll be in there in a minute. And an hour later or so, I came into the bedroom, and there's probably, I don't know, nine or ten loaded syringes on her lap. And so I just grabbed one. I grabbed one and and uh, and injected her, and I'm like, man, I wish it was that easy all the time. And then all of a sudden, she started making this gurgling, choking sound. And I'm like, I looked over, and in front of my eyes, I watched her skin flash colors, just like, like a flash and then another flash and her lips got blue around the outside. And then, and then all of a sudden I, there was nothing, no breathing, no choking. And I started screaming and I uh, said, I need help. I need help. Mandy's overdosing. And uh, I only had one friend there. The kids were all up upstairs sleeping in their beds. And uh, we, we take her out and carry her and put her in the backseat of the truck. And my friend jumps in the back and is doing CPR on her. And I get in the driver's seat, and I'm racing from Northeast Brainerd over to the uh, St. Joseph's Hospital, and just screaming out to God and begging, "If you just, if you save her, I will be done. I'll never touch that crap again. If you save her, I'll, you know, bartering, right? Because now yeah. all of a sudden things are hurting, things are real. Right. And and we get right in front of the hospital, and we come to a stop sign on the other side of the stop sign. And this, for whatever reason, seems to be important to my brain, but. On the other side of that stop sign is a squad car, 
and and we've got the windows down we're yelling and screaming and this officer's in the squad car pointed towards us and uh, uh looking at something on his lap he never once looked up and um and i know how loud we were screaming uh i might he might have been sleeping or something but uh um all at that point in time i'm you know i'm still screaming all of a sudden mandy sucks in a big breath of air in the back seat and and uh um literally i was just like tears pouring down my face it was probably one of the most painful moments of my life and uh i'm like we're at the hospital you overdose we're, i want to bring you to the hospital get evaluated and she's like no i'm fine i'm fine and i'm like are you sure and uh and she's like yeah so we go back to the house and i'm trying to call people to ask about you know what do you do if there's an overdose and i figured you know what uh, the opiates slow you down too much so if we just put a put an extra meth into her that'll speed her up and so we started having her do a bunch of meth and uh and then all of a sudden I had this idea, maybe if I do a little less than her, it won't be that bad. And so sure enough, I bartered with God one minute and within 10 minutes, I'm using the same exact thing that almost killed my wife. Yeah. That's, um, that, that I, I just don't even know how to express my, how the way I feel because it, I've seen it happen so many times and I, you know, I never went down the, the injecting of the opiates. And so I didn't have that. Op- I guess there was always a risk for overdose, but I never really had that thought that I might die or that I was with somebody that might die. But I, I, I again, I think it's just a testament to say that you just become aware of it and it doesn't, doesn't affect you, you know, to the point where you feel like you need to stop. And, and then to have something like that happen and, you know, that bartering, get me out of this and I won't. But yet you have that short-term memory loss. Yeah, yeah like, but the 911 God. Yeah, yep. right. That vending machine God, as Mr. Anderson yep. used to say, you know, you, yep. you just want what you want. You want it now. And, and so yep. so then that's not, the, that's not the bottom. That's not the end. So, nope. and, and so I live by this thing, Josh and Heather, that uh, I used to measure how bad I was, right? <laughs> Being hospitalized for a month wasn't bad enough, but my wife overdosed, but she survived, you know. Um, as long as there's groceries in the cupboard, I'm not doing that bad. As long as the bills are paid, I'm not doing that bad. As long as, uh, uh, as, long as uh, uh, the kids are going to school, they got clothes to wear, I'm not doing that bad. And the last last threshold I had that I used to measure myself to always know that I was doing better than than other people, you know, specifically the junkies, is as long as I have custody of my kids, I'm not doing that bad. My life was chaos. There was there was there was trauma uh, happening by the moment with my kids, with us, uh, with the people around us in our sphere. Um, my house was destroyed. There was punch holes in all the walls and. Broken dishes, broken plates. Uh, the kids' rooms were so jacked up. Bathrooms were barely usable. And uh, but I'm not. I'm not doing that bad, right? Because I still have custody of my kids, and there's food, and there's, the bills are paid because somebody else is paying them. You know. Right. Yeah. Uh, but the fighting and the chaos of that, uh, you know, that uh, chemical romance. And uh, on in, in March of 2014, one night it got to be too much, and I, I said I just got to leave because I'm causing. I'm causing pain in my kids. Our kids are seeing me act like a psychotic person, and 
and uh, and it's bringing out the worst in you too. And I remember trying to leave, and everybody's crying. My kids are crying. My, my wife's crying, and uh, and I get out the door, and as I'm walking down the street to the neighbor's house, I'm just crying out to God, and I just I just need to be done. I need to, I want to just die. And if I can't die, if you're not ready to let me die, then I need an intervention in a huge way. And uh, I went into the neighbor's house and I remember just like deep crying, right? Like hurting and feeling it too. And uh, I ended up passing out. And when I woke up the next morning, I seen the time and I was like, the first thing I thought is, oh my goodness, like, I have one son that has special needs uh, that needs help, extra help getting dressed in the mornings, and that was kind of one of my one of the things that I did. One of the things, uh, and uh, um, I'm like, oh my goodness, I wonder if Mandy got up. Probably not. So what are the kids doing? We have a we have a two year old at home, what wandering around by himself, and uh, and so I started walking back to to our house, and and uh, as I approached my house. Um, I seen my son Kale. He's two years old. He's standing in the window, and and uh, as I as I got closer and closer, because I had to walk by the window to go to the door, and uh, and he didn't even see me. You know, when you when you when you you think about your kids right now, when if you start walking by the window and they're standing there looking at it, they're gonna look at you and follow you, right? They're gonna yeah. track with you or make bang on the window. Who knows, right? Uh, but my son looked right through me, kind of like. What I what it reminds me of is when there's commercials on TV or other countries where where their kids are hurting or needing needing something. That's what I seen when I look back in that in that in that memory of my life. I seen my son just glazed over, mm -hmm. and uh, I went in the house and and uh, uh, went and took care of myself like I was good at doing. Right. Yeah. Came back out and got my son changed and dressed and. Uh, looking around at the destruction, furniture's flipped over, clothes piles all over the place, broken light fixtures, and like I said, doors with punch holes, cabinets with punch holes, broken blinds, taped up windows, and then there was a knock at the door. And I looked at, looked through the blinds by the window I was standing, and I seen two Brainerd squad cars. <clears throat> and I remember, I didn't even... All these years later, I can still feel my heart accelerate when I think about this day. Um, and I grabbed my son, I picked him up, put my hand over his mouth, and I went into our bedroom and laid down. And maybe if we're really quiet, they'll just leave. Well, my son thought we were playing because he never get a lot of attention from me. So he's giggling and wiggling, and, uh, and I'm just like, shh, shh. And the officers, they knocked on the doors and the windows. And the doors and the windows, and then the, finally on the third time around, they stopped at my window and said, we can hear a child in there. We're here to do a child welfare check. Uh, you can open the door. We're going to open the door. And if there's one thing I know, child welfare check, they're coming in. Yeah, they're coming in. They're coming in. And so eventually uh, I woke my wife up because I had this this uh, this attitude that I would never open the door for a police officer. Yeah. Um, so I woke my wife up. She went and opened the door for them. They came in and uh, one officer held us in the living room and the other officer went back to the bedroom, heard him digging around for a few seconds and he came back around the corner as in there just shaking his head and he's like, you need to call uh, um, probation, call the task force, call social services, child protection. We need to get these people here right away. And uh, 
you sit there and you sit over there. And I remember sitting on the couch that wasn't flipped over and my wife was sitting on a wooden chair against the other wall. Uh, she, she looked like she, she was dying too, right? We were both dying. And uh, my son's sitting on my lap and I'm trying to pretend like there's nothing going on. <clears throat> and as the house started to fill up with uh, the probation officer who I hadn't seen in months, shaking his head as he looks at me like disappointed. Yeah. I've seen uh, task force agents coming in, and then this, the child protection worker came in with a camera, and, and everybody's just shaking their head, and I hear, can you believe this? I, can you even believe this? And everybody look, looking around and taking pictures of everything and uh, taking pictures of us, and uh, eventually um, uh, the social worker came back down the stairs, and she said, okay, Brian, uh, Kale needs to come with us. And I'm like, well, what for? I got one more good lie in me, right? And yeah. she says, well, you're going to jail, and Mandy's going to jail, and uh, Kale needs to go somewhere where he can be taken care of. And I said, why am I going to jail? Um, I said, I don't even live here. I tried to say I lived down at the neighbor's house, right? And she said, here's the deal, Brian. She said, you can help your son remember this day one of two ways. The first way is you can try to make it fun and like it's going to be okay for him to go with us. And and the second way is we'll pull him out of your arms. Mm. And I just had this flash through my mind and I'm just like, you know, she's totally right. And, and the pain of staying where I was at finally became greater than the pain of change. And uh, as I was handing my son over, I couldn't even hand him to the social worker. I had to hand him to my probation officer because it made it a little bit easier for me. Yeah. Right. And and as I'm handing him off, he's kicking and screaming and calling for me. And I, and I still today, I'm like, why are you crying for me? Because I haven't been a dad. I haven't done anything for you. Uh, all the people wanted to watch cartoons play outside, and I kept yelling, leave me alone. I'll be out when I'm out. If you knock on that door again, you're going to have a problem. Yeah. And now you're crying for me. And I remember I couldn't wait to get put in handcuffs. And if I could have taken a, if I could have taken a physical beating, I would have welcomed it. Mm. Would have welcomed it. For the first time in my life, I went to jail and I was okay being there. And I and I always have a nine one one prayer that I've used my entire my entire career. Right, God, please get me out of there. But this time it was different. God, please keep my kids safer than they were when they were with me. That's all I'm asking. That's and a huge uh, turning point. Yep, and that was uh, that was the beginning of the end. Well, that's that day. I have one question about that, that moment when when they came in and they're shaking their heads and and you know and I think that you had said that you were rationalizing that everything was okay. When you look back at that and you see how bad it was, in the back of your mind, do you think you knew how bad it was? You were just ignoring it, or absolutely. Were you, so you weren't that truly surprised when they came in and they were just like, oh, my God, you know, this is... We knew it was coming. It was embarrassing for me, too, right? Yeah. And it didn't matter how many drugs, because for me, what I believe is that being a spiritual person, I believe that in that moment, God removed every drug that I had available in my body so that I could remember it. Yeah. There was a day. I remember the smell. I remember the sounds. I remember every where every single piece of item whatever item is in that house that day so how many kids were there at that moment in that house and and 
we don't need to go down this road. I'm just curious as to, you know, he, your youngest doesn't have actual memories of that moment. Thank goodness. As a two-year-old, I mean, maybe parts of it, there's behaviors or whatever, but like, what about the other kids? Yep. So our oldest child at the time left because it was, she could, because she had, she had her biological dad, so she could escape. Okay. I remember her, her leaving and, and crying and telling her brothers, I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, I'm sorry. And I remember thinking about that and I got angry at her and I'm like, how dare you take off running and, and think it's going to be easier somewhere else. And we try to give you everything. My good Lord, as I look back and I'm just like layers and layers of trauma from that addiction. So yeah, five kids uh, is how many we had at the time. Four were in the home. Yeah. Uh, from ages two to 12. Okay. Two to 12. That, um, and so that was the moment. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at it and I, you know, we don't need to get into details about, you know, what happened afterwards, but that's, that's that moment. And everybody has that moment of where, you know, and I always say my recovery journey started when I, you know, I was stuck out at this casino and I, you know, I may have had some slips along the way, but I knew, like you said about that clarity, God removed all of that, that those drugs and that things that hazed it out so that you necessarily couldn't remember it down the road because I, I believe this is there's a thing called selective amnesia when it comes to our drug use where we, just where like we, labor yeah just like labor <laughs> i mean no woman would go back and have kids again if they could truly remember how awful it was nobody that would that was went through the drug addiction would truly go back to where you know it was when it was so awful unless they forgot about it you know Right. And right. and so I think what you're describing is, is that moment of clarity where you still can smell those things. You can still remember how bad it really was. And you know, it was the first time that something hurt enough to pierce through the hardest parts of me mm-hmm. that day. Yeah. Because you, you had developed this ability to get through. I mean, obviously look at the hospital stays, um, you know, the, the idea that you were able to, you know, continue to use. And I've had those, those situations too, where people are saying, how could you use after, you know, you almost got killed by this gang, you know, and you, well, it didn't, it didn't phase me, you know, just like the, well, And it's, it's not, and it's not even just like a blackout alcohol or you just don't remember. It's, it's just like labor, actually just different chemical in the brain. Like there's literally well, a chemical in the brain that makes you not remember exactly how bad labor was. That's what the drugs are doing. It's the same thing. It's just not within your brain. It's it's artificial, but it's still going to the yep. same places. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm thankful that I still remember it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is, is that, you know, we, we count those blessings as that this is a good reminder. This is, you know, it's not like we want to feel that pain, but we do want to remember so that we don't go back. Well, we just highlighted yeah. on the last episode, at the end of the last episode, we did a highlight on Elton John, and he actually made a comment 12 years or 20 years or something into his recovery that he still has using dreams a couple days a week. And how it's like a good memory, but yet not, you know? And it's just right. like to yes. remember, like, that, that's where that. I'm at. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's a waypoint for me. It's a marker. Yeah. Right. It's a marker in time where I can look back and measure my growth, but also measure everything that I thought was difficult against that. Right. When I'm facing things today, I'm like, it feels feels like it's the end of the world. Right. How am I ever going to get through this? And then I look back and say, I can. Yeah. Right. And I will. 
and that's that's perseverance that's resilience i mean and you know and that's that's one of those things that you know we are as as people in recovery are those beacons of hope for others and that's why we, that's why we're grateful to have you come on and share your story because yeah brian your story hear, <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's just remarkable and and you know we are getting to the end of this episode, and we're going to have to cut this uh, cut this down. And here. then we're going to talk about your recovery itself. That's, that's the part that's going to be, and that's that's the oh, one I want watch people. Out, folks. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I can't wait to get to that point because you know now we're at 2014, and that the next we got like you know, a decade left. Yeah, we have next nine <laughs> years. <laughs> I mean, your journey has been. I mean, I was just in, and I went and talked to Ralph Ralph Berry. Oh, yeah. Ralph? He's, yeah, he's a great guy. And I told him, about, <laughs> yeah, I told him about you being on a podcast, and, and he was like, he tell you about my glasses? Oh yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. He told me about your glasses, about you walking into you know Oak Street, and just going, is this guy really sober? So we, we should probably test him. You know, every day I got tested. <laughs> no, because because no. he, he said, and I won't, I don't want to spoil it, but you were living in a tent. But you were yeah. wanting that sobriety, and you were pushing through it, you know. Yeah. And that's the part of the story that I'm really looking forward to hearing. But I know this hasn't, this can't be easy. And I know that no matter how many times you tell this, Brian, it's yeah. it can't be easy. So I just I can't thank you enough for coming on. And this is not to re-traumatize. And we've talked to other guests about this. You know, I don't want this to be a re-traumatizing thing. And I know that you're for in a sure. good spot. Sure. You know, I know that you yeah. you've, you've done all you've done the things. You're your faith in God has gotten you to where you're at, you know, and your belief in yeah. God, God has done this. And now God is going to remind you that, you know what, these do, these situations, that story, Brian, does not define you. That's right. You know, you are loved, right. you are worthy, and that's what matters, and you're doing this to help others. And so thank you for doing yeah, this. Yeah, thank that. Thank you. It, yeah, I don't. I can echo what Josh said because you know a lot of people have had struggles after taping. Um, so, yeah. Well, thankfully, I've been given a lot. I don't ever want the rawness to go away. Yeah, I yeah. want to be able to. Uh, what I want to. I want what I'm, what I'm hoping for is that the listeners can feel and experience this journey with with me, right? As I tell right. it. Yeah. Um, because it is all real. And and it uh, and it did happen, and and maybe it's something that that is as similar to what they're experiencing. And I'm hoping that they know now after listening to this and the next episode that wow, I can have that too. Right, and then yeah. then also for family members, you know, the family members that see yeah. their loved one that's doing things like I did or doing. Yeah, things we didn't like even did. get to like the other people in your world around oh, you watching this and we can't even start that now but no, we will because we'll that's yeah. i think that's a oh. huge point is that people who are listening to this might not might be that person and they're like oh my gosh he must not have had anybody trying to like or they're thinking <laughs> what did his mom think you know like yeah. so yeah. well you said well, in the last little, episode little, you talked to her every day or whatever you're very close so yeah. Well, a little teaser, just a little teaser for everybody is yeah. uh, when I got my eviction, I got evicted, which we'll get into that. But uh, I didn't think it was a big deal because I could go to mom's. And I called mom and mom said there wasn't any space anymore. So mm -hmm. hard boundaries out yeah. of love coming your way next episode. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Tough love sometimes has to be. Uh, oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, I was, I was mad. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, All right. Well, thank you so much, Brian. And and again, we're going to get you back on very soon because uh, the best part of the story is coming up. So God bless you, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. If you would be so kind, please go to wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us a five-star rating, possibly a comment, but for sure click to follow us so you never miss an episode. Most importantly, don't forget to share our episode with a friend. And as always, if you would like to ask us a question, have a topic recommendation, or would even want to be a guest on our show, email us at addiction to recovery podcast at gmail.com. That's addiction, the number two recovery podcast at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at A2R Podcast or on Facebook or Instagram at Addiction to Recovery Podcast.